0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dun Laoghaire, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com.
1: Millions of people
0: have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Nothing is real. A Beatles podcast is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft, and we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is part two of All Things Must Pass. And for this part, we are going to focus in on one song. And that song is... uh, It's Johnny's birthday. No, it is (laughs) My Sweet Lord, um, which you all might have heard of. Uh, A massive hit and the lead single from the All Things Must Pass album. Uh, There is multitudes to tell about the song itself, wouldn't you say, Stephen?
1: I would say so.
0: And it's a... You know, this would have been the first... Thing that people heard from Solo George, and uh, you know, it almost wasn't a single at the time, and it might not necessarily have been the most obvious choice for singles. Sometimes these things are obvious in retrospect.
1: Yes, uh, my understanding is it was really it was Phil Spector who was, was pushing for this as the single. Uh, George not uh, necessarily very keen on that at all um, at the beginning. Um, as you say, this is really the, the, the sort of the first thing people might have heard uh, of his solo career. And uh, point you mentioned right at the beginning of the first episode is this doesn't sound like the Beatles. You, you know that there's nothing. Uh, Beatly about this at all? No, it's a very, it's very much its
0: own thing, and uh, but it took a little while to get to where it got to. Um, so let's uh, let's rewind back. We mentioned in the first part that at the end of 1969, George is on the road with Delaney and Bonnie, and he's living. Um, you know, having been asked by Paul to get in a bus and play as a band in various venues around the country, he has decided to get in a bus and play with a band in various venues around the country, that band being Delaney and Bonnie. And he rolls with the punches as camaraderie. He's literally on the bus and they're all playing
1: guitars. Yes, I mean, so he's he's, uh, he's just hanging out with musicians. And um, you, you. this is the sense that, that this is what he is looking for. He's looking for... A sort of band of equals. In this case, he is the one, um, along perhaps with Eric Clapton, who are kind of stepping down and into this band of jobbing musicians. Billy Preston is there, and uh, you know he sticks with it all the way up to uh, them them touring in uh, Europe. So he he finds himself in Copenhagen, uh, in Denmark, and that is where this song. Starts to germinate.
0: Yeah, and there is lots of cross pollination. You know, if you look at that kind of sixty six to sixty nine period, you know, Clapton is kind of the nexus of that kind of thing. But people coming out of John Mayall's Blues Breakers and Yardbirds and Zeppelin forming and all that kind of stuff. So um, there is this kind of musical chairs of really serious furrowed brow musicians playing meaningful music to you know people stroking their (laughs) beards.
1: yes and george wants part of that action george wants part of that and this is back to this this point again that you 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 touched on this idea of authenticity getting back to your roots this the band it all comes back to the band man (laughs) um and, and it is it is all part of that move away from the kind of big superstar um uh, sort of solo spots, you know, so Clapton and Harrison are just submerged in the group identity. You know, Clapton is walked away from blind faith, which is, you know, the ultimate uh, sort of super group vanity project. Um, Dylan is, is doing his acoustic stuff. Uh, and, and there's just a downscaling uh, and a kind of... Um, camaraderie uh, amongst musicians and it's being able to step away from your role as the lead guitar player in the Beatles or the guitarist from Cream and just work with other musicians.
0: Yeah so My Sweet Lord begins in this um, environment It's only a short period of time you know about two weeks at the start of December 69 when George is involved in that tour it's about the same length of Wings's university tour in 1972. Um, it always comes back to it wings. Always it always comes back to wings. But "My Sweet Lord" becomes,
1: this, you know, begins as sort of
0: a kind of an open kind of vamp, doesn't
1: it? Yeah. So supposedly there was uh, the story is that there was a press conference going on. George wasn't at that, um, and he just began kind of vamping on some chords uh, and and fitting the chords to the words "Hallelujah" and harry krishna um and as he's kind of doing this other members of the band are drifting in and out and they're they're kind of joining in and you just have the sense of this communal sing-along um and i suppose that's that's evident in the final uh the final song but um they all just collaborate and they're they're singing along and uh it's a kind of exchange of ideas
0: and one of the songs that's often quoted as being a, you know, a, you know, an, an, you know a, a preview to this song is Edwin Hawkins' Oh Happy Day. The Edwin Hawkins singer's hit Oh Happy Day. That's a, yes. a song that introduces uh, a sort of universal spirituality in a gospel style to the top of the charts in the US. Yes. Um, and there's certainly some of the DNA of that song is into My Sweet Lord, and that would have been in Georgia's mind,
1: i think i think that's true i mean i've heard billy preston or read billy preston interviews where he said you know george asked him you know how do you write a gospel song yeah um and uh you know because that would that would not be something that george was familiar with that's not part of the kind of tin pan alley uh it's not part of the chuck berry it's not part of the r&b it's not part of the 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 sort of brill building stuff so this is this is new to him Mm. um uh, so 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 yes, it, it's the Edwin Hawkins uh, "Oh Happy Day" uh, big hit, and most importantly, in the public domain. Yes, um, which is something important. that might
0: come back to haunt George, as we'll discuss in a few moments. But Delaney Bramlett thinks that they were responsible for "My, yes. My Sweet Lord."
1: Yes, I mean he, his his story is that that again George is is trying to write you know how do you write a gospel song and he starts singing oh my Lord and his wife starts singing hallelujahs in reply and lo and behold the song is pretty much written the refrain is written. Um, there's a very good piece in, in Mojo in 2001 by John Harris. Mm. Um, and he, he compares that to the fisherman saying, you know, it was this big, the one that got away, um, <laughs> that, it, that, it, that it's just a bragging uh, story. And he doesn't give much uh, credence to that. Um, yeah. but, but, but it does seem either way, I think, I think it, is, it does have the, the, its origins in a kind of collaborative sing-along.
0: Yeah, and my kind of feeling of it is that, you know, it's possible that the song might never have been thought of again by any of the people on that bus, only it becomes this massive hit 12 months later. And they're like, "Eh, wasn't that something that we were singing on the bus? Kind of, sort of. And whether it's the exact same or partially the same, you'd still attribute it to something that happened in your presence, I suppose
1: the royalties on the bus go round and round. <laughs>
0: um, now, the thing I've always found um, interesting is that, you know, George's version of My Sweet Lord is not the version that people hear first. No. Um, that, uh, well, if people were listening, that is, because he does end up giving it to Billy Preston. And uh, he his version comes out before George's. So technically, George's version is a cover version. It's a argue. cover
1: version, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, George, George is, co- is co-producing uh, Billy Preston's second album for Apple, Encouraging Words, and that comes out in September 1970. So George, is, as you said, originally thought he might give this to Edwin Hawkins, uh, yeah. you know, but it, it ends up... And at this stage, it's unfinished. I think there's a general sort of acceptance that that during the encouraging word sessions they're still working on this and uh, they, they, we may put up a link to billy preston's version but it, it is different i mean it, it it you obviously know it's the same song but it is a very different um very different arrangement um so it's still a work in progress it's a very flexible thing
0: yeah and it's it, it, i guess that's the The nature of the song itself uh i mean obviously george's final version is so hugely familiar because it becomes so huge um but there's a there is part of the song that is you know it's it's kind of created from thin air that you know you you take it apart and it is you know a spiritual it's a it's a vamp it's it's not necessarily it's not it's not like uncle albert admiral halsey you know it's it's its it's it's, its own thing
1: it's a very simple thing and and if you break it down into its constituent parts you think this this must this must be a song that has always existed You, you know it has that feeling to it it does have you know it does have that sense of a song that that probably has been around for hundreds of years um But uh, as I say, it's still being worked on. It's being fleshed out. And the Edwin Hawkins singers are actually in England touring uh, at the time it's being recorded by Billy Preston. And they they actually make an appearance. Um, So, I mean, it's got very good gospel credentials.
0: Yeah. And that recording is in January 1970. So actually, it's quite hot off the skillet uh, from Delaney and Bonnie by the time he hands it off to Billy Preston. Uh, but the flip of that is that you know Billy Preston then sits on it for nine months. You know, whatever notion yes. that this was some massive hit in the making wasn't uh, obvious to anyone at the time.
1: No, and as I say, if you if you listen, we put up a link. It's it's a very different song, and um, although there were plans when Encouraging Words comes out in September 1970, this was going to be the single so uh on until uh, until the record company realized what they had in George's version and it's worth saying that encouraging words is a great album um, it's a very good album yeah, very very good album
0: so it's it's 5 months later um that George starts to approach recording my sweet lord for all things must pass yeah. and
1: um it's it's huge isn't it what, the sound they managed to get it is. And I mean, I think this is this is the quintessential example of of what, uh, you know, Phil Spector can do with a uh, couple of acoustic guitars.
0: <laughs> a couple. Yes. All playing you at know, the he,
1: he 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 sort of the thing that thing, uh, you know, I was listening to this again um, it, 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 the song again in the remastered version. And it the, the production is spectacular. I mean, it's crystal clear. You can hear the guitars. Yeah. Um, so you can hear the individual instruments, but at the same time, you have a sense of a sort of massive sound. But it's not the sort of bombastic, over-the-top sound that sometimes infects uh a few of the songs on all things must pass. It's it's yeah. a spectacular piece of production, particularly if you compare it with the Billy Preston version. And if you compare it with the sort of various cover versions that followed, uh, in its wake.
0: And I think it's, but yeah. And it's, as you say, the bombast is kind of missing because it doesn't really have any orchestral overdubs per se. No. The overdubs
1: are mainly choral in nature. And yes. they're all George, isn't that right? Yes, they're all George. So, where uh, generally speaking, where you see uh, credit to the George O'Hara Smith singers, <laughs> that's George. And uh, you know, Spectre has remarked on on, on George's ability to harmonise with himself and to construct that type of vocal arrangement and um you know it was I'm, I'm sure it's only within the past few years that i realized that that was george i mean i assumed that was the massed ranks of uh, a choir or, yeah. or uh, singers that he had got in and but he painstakingly did this and overdubbed and built up and it, the choir effect and it's it's really quite Strike it. it is. It's got,
0: uh, yeah, it, it's kind of got Bohemian Rhapsody uh, prototype vibes yeah. going on with this yeah. kind of self-overdubs. self, self overdubs, Or even good old Jeff Lynne would be known to be doing a bit of that as well. Let's uh, move on. Let's move on. <laughs> got to squeeze in a reference somewhere, Stephen. Um, so it's uh, it, it's got this kind of touch on it and, you know, it has this kind of girl group feel as well.
1: It's, yes. Which... And, and-
0: Starts this is where we,
1: yeah, blur some lines. It it does. I mean, it, the Preston version is the Billy Preston version is very clearly it's Oh Happy Day. Yeah, but gospel. It's a gospel thing, but you know George doesn't come from that uh, tradition. So we're talking the chiffons' 1963 hit. He's so fine. He's so um, fine. And nobody, it, nobody notices this, as far as we
0: know, in the studio. Nobody starts to mention the fact that it sounds like this other song
1: before apparent, it's made. Apparently not. Apparently not even Phil Spector. Yes. Uh, the master producer of girl groups in the early... I mean, he... he uh, it's a carbon copy... Uh, you know, and this is Phil Spector's doing the arranging and the producing, and it, it comes out that way. And you think, was Phil? Did he not notice, or was he not present? It, it might in have been inverted
0: commas, but it, well, he might not have been present because uh, he wasn't present for some of it. But it, it might have been the fact that the song is taken on so many forms and has been so familiar and has become embedded in the months of being put together and being bounced from the tour bus to Billy Preston to you know the uh you you know to george himself um that you know it just had kind of passed them by they'd just kind of gotten used to it for being its own thing and certainly one of the things that pushed this to the prominence uh the 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 the, the, he's so fine issue was the fact that it did become the single because the initial plan was that there was going to be no single from all things must pass
1: that's right, that's right. There was going to be no single, and then there was uh, talk of Isn't It a Pity being the single, and that it was actually uh, Alan Steckler in Apple, uh, along with Alan Klein and Phil Spector, they all started pushing for My Sweet Lord to be the lead single, to be mm. the single that was going to promote. George, not confident about this at all, and you, you can you can see that. You can see it's... Although there's a clear sense with this album, I think that he's he's wanting to put a lot of clear blue water between himself and the Beatles. This is this is quite an extreme example of that. I mean, you just cannot uh, comprehend this song ever having been released by the Beatles. You know, we all we all play that game of. You know what would the Beatles' 1970 album have been of the 1971 album? I mean, I don't think anyone would put "My Sweet Lord" on on a Beatles album.
0: It, it is a credit to the song itself that it transcends what it's about, even and it's also transcendent. But yeah, you know, if 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 you were to read on paper, say in September 1970, that George Harrison's debut solo single ahead of his debut solo album is going to be a big four to five minutes spiritual sing along harry krishna style chant (laughs) you would have thought oh i hope i like his new direction that's interesting um you know we're so used to hearing it now we kind of forget that it's a prayer yes Yes. That's, and, that's what George from the Beatles put out as his debut solo single, A Prayer. Yes,
1: yes. And uh, George says, uh, again, this is a direct quote, he said, I was sticking my neck out on the chopping block because now I would have to live up to something. But at the same time, I thought, well, nobody's saying it. I wish somebody else was doing it. Yeah. Um, but it, th- this is his signature solo song.
0: And, you know, we talked in the McCartney episode about the McCartney album, that that album kind of comes out... As a blank slate, that yeah. you know, there's no McCartney album. He's keeping it under wraps, and then there is this McCartney album, and people are disappointed in a way, or they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're it's not what they
1: expect, or they're kind of it's surprised. Not what they exp- yes, it's not what they expect.
0: And we mentioned on that episode that you know, could it have been different if maybe "I'm Amazed" came out as a single three weeks beforehand yeah. to kind of usher people in to say, "Don't worry, there's there's this thing on this album." You know, it's a friendly
1: song um you know do, could, do you know do you think if that had happened they might have been even more disappointed when they got the album uh, yeah there's, there's a, <laughs>
0: um there was a, there was an interesting thing i was reading recently um about uh how uh, Stephen hyden who's a journalist who's written this book about radiohead but he was also interviewing um uh jeff tweedy from wilco and they were talking yep. about how people's impressions of albums get formulated around one song and normally it's the first song on the album that whatever song you put up front on an album that is what people will think that album is about you know so if you put a quiet song up front people think oh this is their introspective album and it just might not necessarily be true and i think it's also true for lead-off singles that a lead-off single can you know create a friendly space or a friendly song to say you know, I you know, I love this tune. This is great, and so it gives you a nugget of love to bring into whatever album's about to to follow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: but there was no love nuggets for Paul when McCartney came no. out. No, you
1: get 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 that on a t-shirt. I think no, I'm getting no, my
0: metaphors
1: slashed. No love missing. nuggets for Paul. I think that, that's that, that's my favorite expression you've used on any episode. Um but anyway anyway,
0: but my sweet lord is kind of I think it's instrumental in how we process All Things Must Pass because I've joked before that All Things Must Pass is a fantastic double album. And uh, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to ignore the fact that there's a, an album of Apple Jam. If, if, if All yeah. Things Must Pass had come out with no single and Apple Jam was LP1, we'd have a different feeling about it today. That's so, true. So all this stuff, all this context is important. And M- My Sweet Lord is really important in terms of how we filter our love of all things must pass. I
1: think I I think that that's I think that's right. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, it's a, essentially an acoustic song. Mm. So for all of the um, the sort of Phil Spector production, I mean, people talk about how over the top Phil Spector's production is on the album, and it's very sort of overblown. And you know, George talked about that as well. But actually, you know, people tend to forget. That more than half of all things must pass is essentially acoustic. Yeah. It may be arranged by 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 um, uh, Phil Spector, and it may may have string arrangements by John Barham, etc. But it's a it's it's an acoustic album. And when the sort of big bombastic songs come in, they tend to overpower that. But uh, as you say, uh, "My Sweet Lord" does kind of set the tone. Uh, the thing that fascinates me is that. Although you had Spectre and Alan Klein pushing this as a single, did they, did they have any conception of uh, just how huge it was going to be? I, they can't have.
0: I mean, they obviously knew it was special, but uh, they can't. You know, the, the, it still casts a shadow today, you know.
1: You, you know, I mean. Uh, wh- what are the numbers? I'm... I mean, it sells a tonne. Yeah, so, I mean, some of the numbers here are, it says worldwide sales amounted to 5 million copies by 1978, and by 2010, it had sold 10 million copies. Mm. Um, There's a great quote uh, from
0: Rolling Stone here, which is, uh, in 2002, they said, it is as pervasive on radio and in the youth consciousness as anything The Beatles has produced. I think. Well, I think...
1: I don't disagree with that. At this stage, I think... It's hard for us to get our head around just how big it was, how big all things must pass was, and how quickly it's – well, how unexpectedly, as mm. well as how quickly, it sort of elevated George. Yeah. in, in You know, it's, it's ridiculous to say he suddenly became a superstar. I mean, he was a Beatle, but he suddenly was – on every radio uh across the world his album was number one it was a triple album he was outselling paul and john and ringo and everybody else but Uh, it
0: also had that undefinable thing and it's a bit of a lame phrase but this kind of x factor thing it grabbed the zeitgeist it was its moment so it spoke to people it delivered in a way that people delivered it uh You know, it it, it had a mysticism to it. And as we said in the first part, it was a... It wasn't a Beatles album, it was a Beatles, you know, you didn't have to like the Beatles to, to get no. on board with this record. No, and
1: it, it it did, I think, although it's not a sort of personal confessional song, but it does kind of start, that, that wave that had started of the acoustic singer-songwriter, acoustic music, wooden mu- music, yeah, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, that was going kind of hand-in-hand hand with the, the Led Zeppelin hard rock. You also had the rise of the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, with Crosby, Stills and Nash and and uh, So it's kind of, it's kind of wooden music. It's it's nice, it's nice organic music. But at the same and,
0: time, nobody else could have delivered it, I don't think, except George Harrison, the within you, without you guy, you know, yeah. you weren't going to get a, a My Sweet Lord from Derek and the Dominoes, you know, no. even though the, the constituent parts are in the background. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, that kind of spiritualism... George had set those foundations back in the Beatles.
1: Exactly, he had he had that track record, so it wasn't just people would know it's not just somebody jumping on a bandwagon. Yeah, um, it's a continuation of that. So
0: yeah, so as the saying goes, though Stephen, where there's a hit, there's a writ, and um, it doesn't take long um, for the the lawsuit to drop about. My sweet lord, um, being so close in melody to uh, the song "He's So Fine," which was written by uh, Ronnie Mack. so it's yeah. actually the tenth of February, nineteen seventy-one, where Bright Tunes, the publishing company that own "He's So Fine," put out, um, you know, put out the paperwork to sue Harrison and Harrisongs and Apple Records for copyright infringement. So we're talking about two months after the single and album come out that the the, the writ is there. So it happens pretty quickly.
1: Boom, time for lawyers.
0: <laughs> and we all love lawyers. They're, they're great a good people. Thing. There, there is
1: no question to which the uh, correct answer is not, we need more lawyers. Um, <laughs> there isn't any
0: problem that can't be made. It can't be solved by throwing yeah. lawyers at it. <laughs> yes. um, uh, um, uh, so, a, there's an interesting footnote. There's a, There was a cover version of My Sweet Lord that you pointed out to me by the Belmonts.
1: Yes, Formerly Dion and the Belmonts. Uh, yeah. So Dion has gone his own way, you know, a teenager in love, but Dion and the Belmont.
0: But they do this uh, kind of do wop version of my
1: sweet lord, kind yeah. of in the style
0: of He's so yeah. fine.
1: It's 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 very strange. Um yeah, it's 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 almost it, it Sort of stamping feet. It's a very dull song the way they do it. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's it it doesn't curio. do anything. Yeah, it's 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 a very. It is just a curio. It's a kind of novelty hit, and I think there's maybe like a kazoo on it as well. But it's it's sort of a doo-wop version, and in the middle of that, they seamlessly segue into "He's So Fine." Yeah. So, so it, you you couldn't have uh, if you tried um, sort of sort of highlight uh, any better the the similarities. Uh, between the two songs, and as you say, this then uh, uh, results in, in the lawyers getting circling. involved. So He's So Fine was written by uh,
0: Ronnie Ronald Mack, and it was recorded by the Chiffons originally, and uh, Mack had written the song, and it had been uh, the Bright Junes Music Corporation uh, who were based out of New York who uh, took the copyright of the song, and you know, the basic 101 of the music business is that a song has a publishing house uh, or publishing company attached to it and the role of the the music publisher the publishing company is to monetize the song and collect royalties and to get them back to the songwriter and they take a cut and the songwriter gets their cut but they also have an interest the publishing company in preserving I guess what you would call the intellectual rights of the piece itself so if they feel somebody else is uh, monetizing their asset, that they have a right
1: to stake a claim to that. Would that be a reasonable overview of? I think I think that's a very fair summation of the. Uh, of, 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 I risk my the, case. Uh, no, that's see how this works. <laughs> Objection of, of, the le- of, of the legal thing of the legal position, and the, the, the and the thing to remember is, he's so fine was a massive hit. Yes, number you one know, in it's, America. It, Exactly, It's not that this was a sort of an obscure song, you know, festering away at the lower reaches of the charts. This was a massive hit. It was number one for five weeks in America. It got to um, number 12 mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, the UK. When From Me to You was at number one. So, so and the Beatles loved
0: their girl groups. It, it can't have not been heard by them in some context no, at some no, point no.
1: you know absolutely i mean i think this is this is a point that we'll come back to but it it was a it was one of the big hits of 1963 in in the uk so clearly it was uh it was on their radar must have been
0: so this lawsuit gets launched and um alan klein is still harrison's manager at this point so he's the first person dispatched to try and sort this out what does he do
1: yeah, well, he he goes and knocks on the door of the uh, uh, the 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 president Seymour Barish of uh, Bright Music, and I mean, I, I imagine you don't want Alan Klein knocking <laughs> on your door. Dude, uh, that would have been a friendly chat, a friendly chat. So anyway, he, Klein is 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 basically entering into negotiations with Bright Music and his idea is that we'll buy your company, we'll buy the entire catalogue. You know, Bright Music publishes various uh, um Uh, songs and has a has a portfolio and uh the idea is you know yeah we look we just buy you out lock stock and barrel and then we loan it and that'll be fine everything will be fine Um, so fine so fine (laughs) Uh, it's so fine and uh it's gonna be a long episode (laughs) and um bright music they in the nature of things they have a counter proposal and they say no no i tell you what you give us the copyright to "My Sweet Lord," this this huge international um, <laughs> hit, but in return, we will give you back fifty percent of mm. whatever "My Sweet Lord" um, earns. Yes, and that's sort of the the, the the negotiating positions, and it seems to stick at that for a while, and then uh, Bright Music goes into receivership. Yes. So, um, a receiver is appointed, uh, and, and the nature of a receivership is the receivers in there just trying to wind up a company, trying to maximize the value of the assets. And obviously one of the big assets is the litigation, the potential value of this, um, litigation.
0: Yeah. So it, it kind of, the, 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 it means that bright tunes is kind of frozen in a way. Yeah. And you know, there, there are, as you say, the real assets that it has, but there's also this potential thing. Does, yes. this, does this potential case have value? And, you know, there's a, a lot of modern day economics is based on risk and possibility and, and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But somebody would be looking at that to say, well, you know, what's it worth? And it, it's it, at the same time, Klein is also trying to have a look at whether the case has merit, isn't it? He's talking to musicologists about that, this kind of thing.
1: That's it. So, uh, you know, Klein, and it shows you sort of the relationship between Harrison and Klein at this point. So Klein is really taking the litigation forward, uh, the defense, and he finds a, a musicologist, a chap called Harold Barlow, who's going to be the, the expert to come in and say, these two songs sound nothing like each other. Yes. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> So um, uh, this is all going on. The receivership has got in the way and things are sort of in in limbo. But as you say you know, there is a potential value here and you think people will recognize this yeah, potential and take, value. And take and, a gamble, and,
0: which might be a very lucrative a gamble.
1: gamble. Ex- exactly. And one of, the, one of the people... Well,
0: it's interesting. There's a there's a, a, a white knight comes in to see,
1: can he buy Bright Tunes? What's his name? Yes, yes. his name is... I'll just check my notes. Just check his it name. There. His name is Alan Klein. Oh, wait a second, Stephen. <laughs> Alan Klein,
0: who has been representing George Harrison... Sees an opportunity to buy
1: this receiver ship asset. Yes. So, uh, but that doesn't <laughs> seem right, Stephen. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's a matter for the courts to decide, Jason. But it wasn't like he was also supplying
0: the receivers of Bright Tunes with insider information about the nature of George Harrison's
1: claim. No, I'm sure that I'm sure that wouldn't have Don't happened. Check I my mean, notes I, again. I, I better check my notes again on that. So, so oh, actually, well, yes, I, I can see there is some some passing mention to this. So, uh, what has happened is that in March of 1973, uh, client's contract with with uh, uh, Harrison, Lennon, and Starr has come to an end, and that's slightly acrimonious and in the way of all things beatle related there's a raft of lawsuits uh to do with this so and it is interesting
0: to point out that just to remind ourselves that you know the big split between paul and john george and ringo was signing the contract with alan and klein and paul maintained yes. that klein never represented him and wisely their contract with klein wasn't absolute it was for a period of time yeah. and they ended up i think it was four years they ended up laying the four years Run out, and that takes us to the start of 1973,
1: um, where they finally have no direct obligation to Klein anymore. And so Klein is a free agent, so he goes off and and uh says, you know, "I'll, I'll I'll buy Bright Tunes, so he starts negotiating. Now, at this stage, Harrison has made an offer, yes, um. And uh, so Klein is aware of that. Klein is aware of all of the the information that, on which that offer is based, mm. uh, is aware of, you know, uh, what the musicologist Harold Barlow is saying to George about the yeah. song. So he has all of that. He has uh, insider it, knowledge of the potential it, value of this claim. Exactly, exactly. And part of this was also Klein's own estimate on what the song uh, was worth and what the earnings were and what the present and future owners of the copyright might be inclined, might be likely to to receive. So, um... millions of people have lost
0: weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at
0: airbnb.com slash host.
1: The next step uh, takes place in February 1976. And this is the the, the case actually goes to court uh, in the U.S. in New York. And George attends the proceedings, clutching his guitar and, um, you know, he's called upon to, you know, from the witness box to actually demonstrate um, the chord progression and how he wrote it and go over the background and the experts are there. And um, and, and
0: George's offer at this point, the offer he made before the trial was, was what, about $150,000? 100, 140,
1: $148,000. That was okay. in Janu- January 1976. He was so saying, that's, that's what's been turned down. Yes. But he because, doesn't have
0: a sense that Klein is involved in trying to buy tunes behind his back. He at, doesn't know not, that yet. Not, at this,
1: stage, not okay. at this stage. Not at this stage. Not at this stage. So ultimately, the outcome of that trial is that in September 1976, the court finds that uh, Harrison had subconsciously copied He's So Fine. Mm. So the judge says, uh, perfectly obvious that the two songs are virtually uh, identical, and was con- they were convinced that neither Harrison nor Billy Preston in his arrangement set out to to take the melody, but that's not a defence. Um, the key point here is they had access to the uh, uh, recording of "He's So Fine," they knew it, and that is that is sufficient.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the, they talk about in the ruling, don't they, about this intent to infringe yes and uh you know i don't think there was ever any claim that george intended to go out and copy he's so fine but they don't have to prove the intent of him to copy the song because they the 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 subconscious aspect of it is what matters and the song just sounds like he's so fine and that's that
1: that's it and the 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 ruling went to appeal on that point and and the appeal court was very clear in saying you you can establish this infringement of copyright if the two things are substantially the same, and the second composer had access. Yeah, uh, is the word that they used. And Harrison conceded that yes, that he had heard it. You know when it was popular, so he acknowledges that back in sixty three um, he had heard the song, and that was sufficient to establish the second point, which was access.
0: But it's interesting because there have been other you know many. Um, plagiarism cases in, in the before and afterwards. And um, there's a great book by Clinton Halen called One for the Money, if anybody wants yes. to look at the history of music publishing. Because, let's take a step back for a second, you could argue it's kind of preposterous that you own a song. That's true. You know, it's uh, the... Um, you know, it's it's a construct that says that these things have a value that and a right and it's you know, it's yep. it's it's uh you know, there is a history to all that and, and Sir like Clinton Haynes' book, One for the Money, uh outlines the last Hundred and forty odd years of music publishing because it wasn't a thing of once upon a time and then it was a thing.
1: That's it, and 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 uh, the, you know that we've seen recently. You know, you've got issues like sampling and and and, and that kind of copyright infringement and there are a lot of developments in copyright law. It's not my area, and I don't. I'm hmm. not giving anybody legal advice, but <laughs> um, but it, it 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 is very clear that this this notion of subconscious uh, copying Um, and this really sets uh, you know a direction for copyright law this this is this is a kind of a big case in in establishing a principle and and uh, you know arguably a lot of what we're seeing in copyright cases even today stems from the principles that are set out in this in this case
0: um but even the 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 notion of access doesn't like i've heard of copyright cases where access doesn't matter so one of them would be um noel gallagher versus neil Innes for how sweet to be an idiot um the neil Innes song being copied or plagiarized into the oasis song whatever noel gallagher said straight up i have no idea who this man is what this song is i have never heard it i don't know what it is but uh, as a as a as a Neil Innes Python head, the first time I heard whatever, I was like, yeah. "Whoa, wait a second. And uh, you know, Neil Innes gets a co-writer credit, yeah. uh, or got I mean, a co-writer credit uh, on the back of that. So even access isn't necessarily. No, um, I mean
1: what 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 you have to realise is that. Um you know, copyright was will be applied differently in in different jurisdictions. There will be different tests. and 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 generally, uh, you know, these cases take place in the states or in the UK, and uh, wherever you think you have a, the best chance of succeeding. So, the, the the recent case that was settled where we, we established that Led Zeppelin never copied anybody. Um, <laughs> I think that's what it said. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the early uh, stages of that litigation was around whether uh, uh, Jimmy Page could have heard the song. The sp- and, we're talking about the spirit uh, song. The spirit it? song. Yeah. Taurus. Taurus, and uh, yeah. you know, there were, there were, I, I think from, I mean, from memory, people were saying, oh, but they shared a bill at the Fillmore yeah. in, uh, in 1969 or 1970 and, and, and this song was played. So, of course, he could have heard it. Um, so, it, it, you know, it. It, it, it's, a, it's an absolute minefield. And particularly in the more recent cases where you have like blurred lines and, and, and that uh, type of litigation, it's almost to the point where people are saying, oh, you can almost copyright the feel." Uh, of a well, song no blurred anymore.
0: lines by pharrell from whatever it was 2015 odd yeah it yeah. got sued for copyright because it copied the feel of uh was it got to get on up from marvin gay I marvin gay uh, yeah. yeah uh i might be getting the title of that wrong and yeah they don't share melody lines but they do share a feel uh, a groove but, yeah. a groove um and and that has uh gone in the favor of the marvin gay estate the other thing that obviously involves plagiarism is whether or not you actually want to sue somebody so tom petty famously sued one person but then didn't sue another person he sued sam smith for stay with me because he felt the melody line took from i won't uh, back down yeah um but there's a red hot chili pepper song called danny california which Absolutely has the same melodic structure as Mary Jane's Last Dance, and Tom Petty was like, I oh, sure. don't mind the Chili Peppers. Don't, they're all right. Yeah, they're, they're okay." Uh, I mean, so I mean it,
1: what? Yes, one of the one, you know, one of the one of the easy options here is just to give give the other person a writing credit. Yes, um, and that does happen frequently. There was a Crosby, Sills and Nash um, uh, album. Maybe Crosby, Stills Nash & Young album. Um, and uh, Stephen Stills. Clearly, it was Subterranean Homesick Blues, so he just sucked Bob Dylan's name on it. So, But but then that creates the impression that Stephen and Stills and Bob Dylan have sat down in a room and written a song. Or, uh, well, like anybody... Katie
0: Lang was hanging out with Jagger and Richards. Yes, that's the other the example. I've <laughs> seen my baby. It, yeah. it,
1: so... Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the kind of uh, uh, copyright cases that we see today rest on 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 the principles here that established very firmly that that kind of notion of subconsciously copying something uh, was a thing. So um, he's
0: so fine. The technical details about that were what, and this I'm is going sort of... I'm,
1: I'm, I'm going to hand this over to you at this point. Well, no, I... you're
0: going to you're going to talk me through this because we're going to do a little something we haven't done before in the podcast where I've got a a small uh, musical piano that I'm going to try and tee up here. And we're going to try and play the repeated passages that uh, were Are we s- said get su- by the... Are we going to get sued for <laughs> copyright? <laughs> Jeez, I haven't really thought about that. I, I don't think that's totally possible, is it? Um, we'll, we'll soon find out. We'll, we'll soon find out. Let's see. Uh, so what was the technical musical motif that they had a problem with?
1: Okay, so He's So Fine consists essentially of four repetitions of a very short, basic, musical phrase, which they called motif A. And uh, that's sort of altered slightly to sort of fit the words of the the lyric. And then that is, so that's four repetitions, and then four repetitions of a second short musical phrase, which they referred to in the trial as motif B. So if you let me know when you're geared up uh, to play the first uh
0: Okay, Stephen, I think I'm ready. I'm going to lower up here. Can we, uh, can we can hear that, can we? Okay, so uh, the first phrase was uh, Sol mi re, motif A. Is that right? So, so that goes to, uh, uh, that goes to, that's the Sol mi re motif. Those three notes. And what's the second one? Sol la. Do-la-do. La, do. <laughs> okay. So-la-do-ti-do. So, so-la-do-la-do. La, do. That's so-la-do-la-do. La, do. There you go.
1: There you go. So what the musicologists <laughs> were saying is that neither of those motifs is particularly novel. Mm. But the But the four repetitions of A followed by four repetitions of B is... Almost unique.
0: So you're talking about four repetitions of
1: each motif. So you repeat four repetitions of. This is great. This is top podcasting. This is top (laughs) podcasting. So, "My Sweet Lord" uses the same motif A, slightly modified to suit the lyric, four times, followed by motif B repeated three times, not four, as in uh, "He's so fine." yeah and um then there's a sort of in, in in place of that fourth repetition there's another little kind of uh passage, and the harmonies of both songs are identical yeah. so it really hinged on that uh, the the repetition the the sort of cons- the construction uh of, yes. of of using those two separate uh Motifs. And, I mean, I'm assuming at this point, everyone will have gone and listened to uh, He's So Fine. <laughs> I'm sure we can all listen to it in our, in our minds.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just put my piano away, amazed by my um, uh, musical Dexterity. skills. Oh, it's yeah. just extraordinary. So George is essentially found mm. guilty um so then it becomes that's the monetary well, no, that, that's a
1: word we use in a civil court <laughs> could i say but i but, <laughs> and he's sent to prison isn't that right but he's sent to prison and um, where he languishes to this day so, so we, don't, we, don't, we don't like to use the word guilty in civil okay. proceedings liable is that what I'm, is that liable. the word we'll, we'll accept liable okay we'll so he's liable, liable
0: and he goes to jail yeah. no he doesn't but he's liable
1: no. and uh the liability becomes a fiscal liability It does. So there's then a second uh, uh, element to the trial where they have to say, right, now that you're guilty, sorry, liable, um, uh, then we have to work out, uh, you know, how much money you're going to have to pay by way of uh, compensation. And um, one thing that we should say at this point is that George is not having a great time generally because his contract with EMI has come to an end and EMI decide uh, to put out a best of compilation, yeah. pretty yeah. shoddy, pretty shoddy, uh, compilation, but naturally enough, they put my sweet Lord on that compilation. So it's earning <laughs> more money. Um, and similarly the chiffons themselves in 1975, just to, you know, uh, <laughs> emphasize the point, put out a cover version of my sweet Lord. Excellent. Um, so he, it, it's just continuing to earn money and this all has to be, uh, factored in so they start then arguing about um or or making submissions to the court as as to what the financial settlement uh should be so basically the court or the judge has to decide how much money is is generated by my sweet lord and how much of that money was due to its similarity with he's so fine um Bright Tunes at this point are arguing, well, you also have to take into account that because of the single, people went out and bought that big, expensive triple album. And yes. We sh- we- we're entitled. We should get a share of that as well. And, um, y- you know, the B side of the single uh, also generated some money and we should probably get a share of that. And you know what lawyers are like. Lawyers. Um, so, so-
0: Betty regretted putting out his love nugget ahead of his album then, you know, uh,
1: because it all added uh, up. <laughs> This is your. This is going to be your new catchphrase, yeah. is it? Okay, <laughs> nope. I'll cancel the t-shirts. Um, so the court basically said uh, three quarters of the royalty revenue raised in North America from My Sweet Lord, as well as a significant proportion of that from All Things Must Pass album, must be taken into account, as well as the inclusion on the recent compilation so they basically were saying three quarters of the success of my sweet lord was due to the plagiarized tune and one fourth was due to george harrison's uh lyrics effectively okay and um, they,
0: but they also went after the money that apple made as a result of the success of the song
1: yes so we've got they're going after george they're going after apple they're going after harris songs which was the which was the um uh
0: the publishing, publishing company for Apple, for, for for George, yeah, yes. So all those people were deemed to have profited from the song. So the individual, the company, and the record company. That's and it. Uh, and so, what sort of numbers did they end up claiming?
1: Well, what the, what the, uh, they said, and these these were based on gross earnings in the USA and Canada. They said um, fifty four thousand pounds, sorry dollars, for the single. $588,000 for the album and a paltry 6000 for the best of George Harrison, which is a little sad. Um, so that's then, George's personal... That's, uh, that, that's what they've really, calculated as, yep, what he made yep. from that song. And then they looked at uh, Apple. Yeah, And of course, George would have been receiving money from Apple as as a sort of shareholder. But um, the similar formula there was $130,000 thousand dollars for the single 925 thousand dollars from all things must pass and Oof. slightly more respectable 21 and for the best of george Harrison. so apple so, are
0: on the hook for more money than george
1: yeah so the total gross earnings for my <laughs> sweet lord 2.1 million dollars all right and they've said that three quarters
0: of that has to be handed over as damages that's it that's Okay, it. so that so, gives us, what, about 1.5... Well, it's
1: yeah. 1,599,000. So a little bit of haggling, but yeah, just shy of 1.6 okay. 6 million. But so, mm. in, a, in another twist... Well, uh, where is Alan Klein in all of this? He has just bought bright tunes you're kidding me That swine that bounder that cheat so between 1976 uh and 1981 klein has completed his purchase so he stands to get 1.6 million dollars from his former client george harrison that is extraordinary like the man uh, is incorrigible but he took he took the risk he made the gamble do you want to know how much he paid for bright tunes how much did he buy bright tunes for five hundred and eighty seven thousand dollars oh my gosh so that's a cool uh, one million profit just like that you know
0: what would have been funny you know who was buying publishing companies in the 70s that would have been very funny if Paul had bought bright tunes. If <laughs> Paul had bought bright tunes. Oh my god, he could have bought
1: a nice motor. Anyway. No 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 anthology. Uh, oh my god. No phrase about nothing. I mean that, that would that would make his override look uh, paltry. So
0: Alan Klein uh, in the background, has bought Bright Tunes for five hundred eighty-seven thousand. Which, irrespective of the catalogue, man, music publishing houses were cheap to buy in the seventies. It was yeah. a great investment. Uh, he buys that for five hundred eighty-seven thousand, and then George has this one point six million that he owes Bright Tunes. So basically, giving Klein a potential million profit. If only there was yeah. some way to appeal or say that's not fair to the court well this
1: is this is why it's very important to have good lawyers and lots of them so, mm-hmm.
0: so, more, lawyers so more, happens,
1: more lawyers turned up and then uh, what more lawyers turned up and they file uh pleadings on on behalf of George saying this just isn't on hmm. this isn't this is not cricket no. and uh, the the judge agreed and said you know this is this is an outrageous uh Uh, A breach of your fiduciary obligations to your former client, and uh, you cannot be allowed to profit in this way. You're a scallywag, Mister. You're a scallywag. I think he actually used that word, and uh, (laughs) perhaps not. It was an American judge. He probably used something much more earthy. Um, (laughs) So he he basically said, uh, "I tell you what, George can pay you five hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars." The price you paid for Bright
0: Tunes, George, so. will give you that money back. Yes, and George will get Bright Tunes. Well, he certainly gets. It. He's so fine, um, and he uh, he. In the end, Klein doesn't make a profit, so he looks like he's cruising to make this cool one million profit. And in the end, he gets his money back, gets and money George back. gets the whole thing closed. Yep. That's um, it. Uh, and in essence, you could argue if he owns, he's so fine. George hasn't really lost much he
1: hasn't lost much except all those legal, legal fees. fees. Yes, uh, do we know where the
0: fees were assigned to in the case probably to Well George. does
1: does I think it's either George I think it's George that makes a comment at one point that we you know we put a bought a lot of lawyers swimming pools and put a lot of lawyers children through college so uh <laughs> collectively like so thing. Like that's that's a, <laughs> like that's a bad thing that's a bad thing um but, But But essentially, essentially George ends up owning both songs. and All is well.
0: All is well. It casts a long shadow. You know, George sang the song live on his brief touring jaunts. um, But I think he certainly had an axe to grind about the whole um, My Sweet Lord, He's So Fine affair for the rest of his days. For a man who was um, naturally tilted to being somewhat... Sour and cynical, it, it it proved a lot of his feelings right about how I, these things uh, were done.
1: I I think that's a fair comment. I think that's a fair <laughs> comment. And uh, um, should we we talk about this song? We should talk about this song. So
0: this song is from 1976. It's a George single, and it's on the album Thirty Three and a Third. And you, you know, you realize going through all the facts and figures for for this episode is that uh, you know this song the song when it comes out this thing is still very much a live wire i'd always thought this song had
1: come out when everything was finished but that's not the case at all that that, that's not the case i mean the 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 judgment uh, he's he's been found liable and they're they're looking at the the at the sort of financial settlement as i say the issue with klein isn't resolved until 1981 but but this entire lyric is is a sort of reference to the the case and people are probably familiar if you're not familiar you should go and find the video for this which is a very funny yeah. kind of spoof uh, slightly python-esque it's directed by eric idle it's stars neil innis um ron wood i think is in drag as a juror mm-hmm. um you, you know jim Keltner is in the video and the whole thing is 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 a commentary on the the case yeah and the song has this line, uh, this
0: tune has nothing bright about it. Yeah. See, folks? Bright tunes. It's, it's very clever. Um, yeah, and it's got Monty Python voices and all the rest. Um, there's a great quote from George here from 1978, which is uh, I won't do the voice. As far as I'm concerned, the effect the song has had far exceeds any bitching that's been going on between copyright people. It's just greed and jealousy and all that. Give them the song. I don't care.
1: But I think he did care, Stephen. I think he did care. I think he did care, and I think you're right. I think I, I think it it was just one more confirmation of the sort of terrible uh, way in which he felt he'd been ripped off all the way through the Beatles and and uh, and on through. Um, uh, uh, my favourite last word
0: in all of this is from 1980 John Lennon's Playboy magazine because all of this kind of plays out during the years where John is is, is, is very quiet but uh, uh, shall I read it out yes um, you can read you can he read it uh, John says he i.e. George he must have known you know he's smarter than that he could have changed a couple of bars in that song and nobody could ever have touched him uh, says the man who wrote Come Together uh, but <laughs> he just let it go and he paid the price maybe he thought God would sort of let him off. I think mean, that's really funny. That is very funny. <laughs> so God He's would very, let him off.
1: Yeah, just turning winding um, Georgia up. Um, um, yeah, Ringo Ringo was much more charitable. Oh really? Uh, what did well, he say? He, he said, "Oh, you know, yeah, no doubt the tune is similar, but how many songs have been written with other melodies in mind? It's much heavier than the chiffons He's just very unlucky that somebody wanted to make it a test case in court."
0: Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, way back at the the start of this episode, you know, we were talking about the song and the spirituality of us and how great it is. But just like life itself, we've become bogged down in talking about the ins and outs of the lawsuits it would put a man off uh, the public sphere of performance,
1: wouldn't it? I thought you were going to say it would uh, put a man off lawyers. But, not uh, at all. They, they not not keep at all. the
0: world going around. Um Let's talk about a couple of, uh, uh, to wrap up, let's just talk about some of the different versions of My Sweet Lord that are out yep. there because it is a song that endures and, um, you know, it, it, it does pop up time and time again. So, Uh, there's george's live version so the concert for bangladesh and live in japan so i guess they are two extremes concert for bangladesh it's still very much a new fresh piece of the the universe uh live in japan is kind of a different type of thing
1: it is but on each of those live albums you can hear the crowd reaction i mean particularly particularly concert for bangladesh i mean there's a huge uh response Mm -hmm. um when when he plays that uh song and that, that and that's a that's a that's a very kind of stripped back uh, version, um, um, and you can hear George uh, breaking off the main melody line to sing the backing vocals uh, there as well. Um, and and then
0: live in Japan is, I mean, I have my own feelings about live in Japan. I think it's a bit wan as a live album. You know, it I think is, it's unfortunate, I mean, so it's a bit of a lost opportunity.
1: I think so. That that's an album that I think really could do with being remastered and remixed and i I, you know possibly my understanding is you know clapton played a few songs each night on those set and i think there's a kind of slightly expanded version of that album waiting to come out yeah um it uh, there was a review at the time uh Mm -hmm. and it said it's like listening to paint dry
0: (laughs) well Um, i still sometimes the, the best george album Although it's heartbreaking, is the concert for George? That's an amazing live document of an amazing body of work. It is,
1: it is, it is. Um, um, it was in good, between, very, very,
0: good. It was very good on the night. It was very. was good Why do you uh, know someone uh, who's? Oh, never mind. <laughs> um, uh, the um, there is a version, of course, in between those from uh, December nineteen seventy five, when George Every, Arson, everyone's
1: favorite version, <laughs> uh,
0: George, uh, obviously in thrall and with uh, with his great friend Eric Idle, appeared on his post-Python TV show, Rutland Weekend Television. And he, basically, if anyone hasn't seen it, it is very funny that George <laughs> spends the whole episode wanting to talk about pirates or do pirates. Yeah, he's, dressed, then, up,
1: he's dressed up as a pirate and wants to be in, 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 in a sketch involving yeah, pirates. Yeah, and he keeps
0: getting elbowed off the show. And at the end of the show, there's this caption card, George Harrison sings,
1: George descends down a staircase playing the intro My to, Sweet, to My, Sweet, My Lord. Sweet Lord. And then what happens? Then he gets to the microphone and breaks into a sea shanty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, about how uh, he wants is, to be a pirate. How he wants to be a pirate. It's a pirate's life for me. I sailed the BBC. So it's full of... It's very funny. It is very funny. Even though we spoiled the uh, punchline, it's still, still uh, worth watching. I'm sure watching. most of you all have seen it. Um, and, and then towards
0: the end of his life, George revisits the song... Uh, one more time uh, for the re-release of uh, all things must pass in at the start of 2001 the slightly belated 30th anniversary edition just like we're probably in the in the realm of getting a slightly belated 50th anniversary edition and i have to admit the 2001 version of my sweet lord i love it it's 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 Definitely, it's like those kind of Joni Mitchell, you know, later in life re-recordings. It's it's yeah. definitely someone who's thirty years down the line. It's infused with a little bit of Dylan. Um, it's got a
1: little bit of playfulness to it, but I really, I really like that take—the two thousand and one version. It's funny because again, that that's a it's a, it's a version that really divides people. Yeah, um, some people just cannot. Stand that song, that that version, that they kind of, and it's very different. And and I mean, I've heard people comment on other podcasts. There are other podcasts. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been listening to other podcasts um, <laughs> behind my back. Sort of saying, you know, it, it it strips away everything that was great about the original in terms of that driving acoustic mm. guitar, and it kind of seems to slow things down. I mean, it's it, it, he took the basic tips. Uh, from 1970 and just sort of built them up again and embellished them. But I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I like it. I don't think I prefer it to the original. But um, well, it, do, it doesn't erase the original. People get no, very no. precious
0: about these things. So it's like, oh, I've got an extra version of My Sweet Lord, you know, which yeah. is, is, you know, he's singing it in a much more personal reflective you know this is a guy who's looking at a different set of circumstances at the turn of the millennium kind of
1: vibe. i i i think so and I, I, I it had occurred to me but you're absolutely right that it, it it is a direct kind of uh you know parallel with those joni mitchell recordings where you you're singing a song uh with the benefit of 20 years experience and hindsight and uh there is something kind of playful about it and uh i suppose that maybe maybe indicates you know he he put all the plagiarism the litigation all of that behind him
0: yeah um so that's worth seeking out if it's if it's uh not something you know as, as a post script apparently there are no new melodies anymore are there Stephen?
1: no i i, I think all, everything has been everything has been done and copyright law is at an end according to the, this is a this is an article that i found in the independent the uk uh, newspaper in february 19 uh, 2020 um where a musician had actually used an algorithm to generate every possible melody there ever was yeah, whatever a, it could
0: be a, a piece of software that can generate 300,000 melodies a second and created a catalogue of 68 billion eight-note melodies that were copyrighted and pushed into the public domain. So everything is in the public domain. Ah, well, I can put it in the hands of my lawyer, but can I make it stand up in court? Isn't that kind of what we need to wonder about? That's,
1: that's what we kind of wonder about. I can't believe you went with that joke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do apologise. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 quite a tale, The Tale of My Sweet Lord. Um but look, you know, whenever we talk about these things, our number one goal is just to make you think of the record and to go back and pull it off the shelf and um, have a listen, because uh, that's what it's all about. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's one of the great songs, isn't it, Stephen? It is, it is. It's it his,
1: is. George's signature song.
0: It is George's um, signature song, and, and went back to number one uh, for January 2002 after his his death, and rightfully so, really.
1: So can we say it was the first number one single by a solo Beatle and so far it's the last Well solo f- number one single fingers crossed for Lavatory Lil let's see <laughs>
0: how that one works out um, so uh, but what do you think everybody uh, I think we know what you think everyone likes My Sweet Lord but you can get in touch in all the usual places um, we're uh, available on Twitter at Beatles Pod uh, Stephen runs the Facebook group so go and get a, a membership there and if you want to leave Uh, A message wherever you get your podcasts Uh, we appreciate all the good reviews All Things Must Pass is a trilogy and we're going to be looking at All Things Must Pass in a third part so stay tuned for that where we're going to go uh, in deep on the album itself Uh, but for now uh, my name is Jason Carty My name is Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.